Let's pray as we open God's word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the Bible, which is as a shining light before our feet in a dark world. I pray, Lord, that you would shine your light upon us this morning, just now, and that you would help us to understand from your word how we can have functional families that can bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have good news this morning. I remembered my suit jacket. I thought, there is no way I'm going to forget it two weeks in a row. (laughs) So that was like the first thing I did. Uh, Another thing that I need to mention before we move into the sermon is uh, there's maybe some who are thinking that uh, Elder Leo was suggesting that you give to the Ukrainian church directly. And uh, I just wanted to clarify that those funds really would be better if you gave them to Stone Tower so that we can pull that money together and give it to the Ukrainian church there directly from one source. Rather than having multiple sources coming, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot easier if we just funnel it straight through the church. Um, and to facilitate that and to make sure that there's no confusion for our treasurer, make sure you mark on your envelope or on your check, local Ukraine. Local Ukraine. And if you mark local Ukraine, we'll know exactly that we're going to send it to this church, this pastor, to feed this group of people in this city in Ukraine. So it's very specific. You know your, your uh, offerings are going exactly for what you've marked it for. It's not going to get lost here or there in the nether. It's going to go right where you have donated it and the Lord has impressed you to donate it. So uh, mark it on a tithe envelope uh, and mark local Ukraine and we'll get it directly where it needs to go. This morning, we're going to be talking about something we can all relate with, and that is how to deal with different characters and personalities. And I say that because no matter where you are, whether it's a job or a family or a church, unless you're stranded on an island by yourself, you're going to have to deal with someone else. And that somebody else has a different character or different personality than you. And you know, there's an interesting phenomena that you can find in relationships around the world. It puzzles many, but it seems to be that when two people get together, opposites attract. Have you found that to be true? My family used to live across the street when I was a boy from a couple in southern Oregon. I think she was seven feet tall and he was five five. And it just, every time they walked down the street hand in hand, I just, there was some dissonance there, you know, an opposite. There, I expected some sameness, but there was an opposite. Now, I don't know 
they probably got along just great and had a wonderful relationship. But it is true, and you find it everywhere you go, whatever country you're in, opposites attract. My grandparents were an example of this. My grandfather was a Democrat, and my grandmother was a Republican. You should have sat there and heard them as they debated one another while the presidential debates were going on. Uh, My grandpa, you know, the Democratic candidate would make a point and grandpa would say, that's right, that's what we need in this country. And grandma would shake her head and say, that's why no one's going to vote for him. Politically opposed. Uh, Grandma and grandpa weren't just politically opposed. They even rooted for separate football teams. When their two teams would be playing on the TV screen against each other, it was comical to see them sit hip to hip together on the couch and grandma would cheer while grandpa would boo or you would see them gently elbow each other when one of their teams would cross the goal line. But you know, at the end of the day, no matter who won the game or who came out ahead in the election, my grandparents never let their political differences or sports teams divide their home. Uh, Grandpa would always call grandma the best cook in town. They always sat and laughed together as different as their views were. They seemed to just accept those differences in the other person. And rather than become a point of contention, it was it was the family joke. grandma's president won this year and grandpa's football team won this time. I mean, it was just, you know, a, a family, a family joke. Rather than seeing one another as enemies, they were able to bring their marriage to their marriage and understanding of one another and an acceptance of their differences that allowed love to flourish in the midst of diversity. And I cherish that uh, legacy that my grandparents left to me, that you don't have to see eye to eye with a person to love them. You don't have to be, uh, to vote for the same person to get along. You don't even have to root for the same football team or basketball team in order to be friends. That there can be love, there can be unity, even in the midst of diversity. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons God gave us families is to give each one of us an opportunity to learn how to work with people who are different than us and yet maintain Christian harmony and love. Because if love can exist in the home where there are varied characters and opinions, if harmony can be maintained in a home where opposites live together, then you'll find love and harmony in the wider circle of the church and society. Where do we first learn it? We first learn it in the home circle, the family circle. The family circle is really a training ground. Uh, It's a place uh, where we get to learn how to get along with others so that we can bring a greater witness to the world of the power of Christ to transform a life. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. How? If you give your life uh, in a, um, in a, for a martyr's death, 
Is that what he said? By this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you have uh, an Adventist logo on your church. No, that's not what it says. What does he say? If you love one another. And who was he speaking to? All of us, but in the immediate context, he's talking to the disciples who were, were about as different from one another as you could get. Just think of the diversity that existed within Jesus' spiritual family circle, the disciples. You had Peter, the first to speak and also the first to regret speaking. You had James and John, always ready to call fire from heaven in any disagreement. You had Thomas. You could never convince the guy. You had Andrew, always bringing a new person to the party. You had Judas, who had to always be in control, especially of the money. Perhaps you can relate with some family members who may fit one of the disciples' characters. It's no wonder these guys disputed who would be the greatest in the kingdom. If ever there was a group that shouldn't get along, it was this group. They were different in ages. They came from different occupations, different parts of the country. Their political backgrounds varied. They each had different major character defects. They saw things differently. If this represented Christ's church, then we would expect endless disputes, divisions, and fractures within it. But Jesus gave a prophetic prediction that the world would be converted by witnessing the unity, harmony, and love in the midst of such diversity of opinion and thought. And it was a pillar of his prayer right before the cross that his disciples would be united in harmony as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in harmony. In John 17, 21, Jesus said that they all may be, what everyone? One, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And you know, oneness does not mean sameness. Oneness can has enough grace and enough flexibility to encompass diversity. I can be different than you, see things different from you, you can see things different from me, and yet we can be one. That's amazing. How does that happen? You know, we look at our world today. Protestants are bombing Catholics. Uh, Ukrainians and Russians are bombing each other. You have uh, Jews and Arabs bombing one another. You have people fighting in the streets over who they voted for. You have people divided on every way you could divide society. And yet, Jesus says, all of this does not need to bring division, war, bloodshed. And in my church, I'm going to set an example of what I can do with a group of people who are totally different from one another. And that is bring unity, bring harmony, and bring love. By this, all men shall know you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. In a little book called Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2, page 619, it says, Harmony and union existing among men of very dispositions is the what type of witness? It's the strongest witness 
that can be born that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. Why? Because another power needs to control me if I'm going to get along with people who don't agree with me. And then she says, it is our privilege to bear this witness as Christians. But in order to do do this, we must place ourselves under Christ's command. Our characters must be molded in harmony with his character. Our wills must be surrendered to his will. Then we shall work together without a thought of collision. Beautiful. So here's where the Lord wants to uh, bring every family circle. He wants to bring us to the place where we're in harmony with one another, where we love one another, where there isn't disagreement and fighting, where there isn't division and strife, where there can be diversity of opinion, diversity of outlook, and yet perfect harmony in the family circle. And then from there, it is to grow and affect the whole church so that the church itself stands as God's great witness to the world of the power of God in the life. Where does it start? It starts in the family circle. Now, how many here long for harmony and unity to exist in your home? Amen. We want it. Jesus wants it. The world needs to see it. But how do we get it? That's the purpose of this sermon this morning, to help restore harmony to your home in the midst of diversity, to help every member in your home to get along and love one another while celebrating the differences that exist between each individual. So if you want harmony in your home, what is the first step? Well, the first step must always be coming to Jesus and praying for harmony. You're going to get nowhere trying to climb that hill alone. So you come to the Lord. You say, Lord, our our family is broken. It's divided. It's Uh, Not getting along. We're not seeing eye to eye. There's arguments all the time. Lord, we need you to restore harmony. And guess who the Lord starts to work on first? The the person who offered the prayer. That's right. Now, don't say, well, I'll wait till she prays. Or I'll wait till he prays. This is where it needs to start. Because you cannot control another person. If there ever is going to be change in your home, in your life, um, if you want a change to happen, the one person, person that is under your control by the Spirit, the one person that you can make choices for are yourself. And there are always choices you can make that can better your situation. So we start there. Lord, bring harmony. And after we've prayed to the Lord, after uh, husband, wife, and children have all bowed in prayer, asking God to bring harmony and unity to your home, what's the next step? The next step is to recognize and accept that it is God's will for there to be diversity, (laughs) not only in the world and in the church, but also in the family circle. Evangelism, page 99 says, from the endless variety of plants and flowers. Who made all those things? God is the one who made it. Uh, Did he have a perfect plan when he made an endless variety of plants and flowers? Yes. And as we look at nature, we can actually see the will of God uh, for our own families. 
He didn't make one color flower, one shape of flower, one size of flower. He made an endless variety of plants and flowers. And she says, we may learn an important lesson. What lesson is that? All blossoms are not the same in form or color. Some possess healing virtues. Some are always fragrant. There are professing Christians who think it their duty. What does she say? Read it with me. To make every other Christian like themselves. And then whose plan does she say that is? This is man's plan, not the plan of God. In the church of God, there is room for characters as varied as are the flowers in a garden. In his spiritual garden, there are many varieties of flowers. Does God want sameness? He wants diversity. Does God want everybody to, everybody to be exactly like me? Now, I wish it was that way. You know, I wish everybody saw things the way I saw them, did things the way I did them. There'd be no, in my mind, there'd be no confrontations, no problems. We'd all get along and, uh, and life would be merry. We'd have a church full of Pastor Michaels. <laughs> Heaven on earth. But she says, that is not God's plan. And unfortunately, our plans get disappointed sometimes, right? So God's plan is that there be someone who's different than me, someone who's really different than me, someone who's just a little different than me, someone who's taller than me, shorter than me, has more hair than me, has less hair than me. Uh, God has made a variety of different character traits and personalities because it takes all of us to reach the world. Every person has a part to play. You know, I've talked to some people who tell me, Pastor, you know who my favorite speaker is? And I say, no, tell me. And they'll say, uh, David Ashrick or uh, Stephen Bohr or someone else. And I go, oh, yeah, I've listened to them. They're good speakers. And, and then... Sometimes within the same day, I'll have somebody who will come to me who will say, I can't stand that preacher. He talks too fast. Or, man, he's got too high of a voice or too low of a voice or whatever. And I've come to realize that if there were one single preacher, your favorite preacher in the world, very few people would be reached as well. It takes multiple different characters multiple different preachers, multiple different personalities in order to reach the world for the Lord. There are individuals who, because of my personality, I'm not going to be able to reach as well as you because God has given you gifts and talents and, uh, and, a, and a mind and a personality and, and whatever. Perhaps even uh, you speak a language that I don't speak. Or maybe it's that you can reach that person because God created you a different gender than he created me. You know, Ellen White talks about women 
uh, can reach people in their homes better than men can. You say, well, that's unfair. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. That's just how it is. And we need to work together and recognize that we each have gifts and talents and diversities that bring a blessing to the church. You read the Bible. And Paul says, should the whole body say, if only I were an eye. Well, if everybody were an eye, where would the lips be? Where would the hearing be? Where would the touching or the, or the moving with the feet be? I thank the Lord that I'm not just one big eyeball. How many would agree? Aren't you glad that each one of you are a system of various parts that work in harmony with one another, even though they're completely different from one another? And the Bible lays it out that way. It says that the church is supposed to look this way, like a body with different parts, all working together in harmony for the glory of God. And the family unit is a microcosm of the church. So you may say to yourself, man, I wish my husband were more like me, or I wish my wife were more like me, or I wish my kids just did things the way I wanted them to to do them. Praise the Lord for the diversity in your family. And begin reframing your perspective and say, Lord, help me to cherish and value and accept and appreciate the differences in my family circle. Because it is God's will that the family circle and, uh, and the church be different. And this is why God chose a Peter who is always talking and an Andrew who is always uh, bringing someone to be on the team. And this is why God chose a doubting Thomas and a believing Nathaniel to make up his church. Diversity adds symmetry. It brings balance to the family circle and to the church at large. We need the difference we each bring. Now, I remember fishing with my son one day, uh, we were fishing in Washington, and on this day, we weren't fishing for rocks. Uh, sorry, fish. We were fishing for rocks. So we cast out. I'm kidding. Uh, we cast out the lure. We were actually trying to catch a fish, but all we caught was the biggest rock in the, in the river. And, of course, it stuck on that rock. You remember that, Joshua? And we pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled on that thing. And finally, I turned to Joshua. <coughs> I was tired of pulling on the line. I said, this thing's never going to come loose. And I am not waiting out in that freezing cold river to go and get that hook. <coughs> I'll buy you a new one. And uh, I said, we just need to cut the line. It's impossible. From my perspective, my personality, it was hopeless. But Joshua had a different perspective. He had a different personality, a different character. He said, I don't want to lose my favorite fish hook. So he said, Dad, can you give me the pull and I can try? And I thought to myself, you know, I could argue with him and tell him why it's not going to work. Or I can just let him find out on his own. So I handed him the fish hook and I sat back and let him struggle. And to my amazement, walking up and down the bank, pulling, letting line out, then pulling and going down the bank and doing it again. He actually got that hook unhooked from that rock, brought it all the way in. And I looked in amazement and I said, Joshua, 
I am so glad that God gave you the character and personality that you have. Because of you, we saved this hook. And uh, he's not the only one. I mean, there are times that my son may be too bashful to ask someone for something. And all he needs to do is turn to his sister, Abigail, who is exceptionally gifted with boldness and the ability to communicate clearly with others. And the obstacle is completely removed and she is able to do what his character prevented him from doing. Praise the Lord. There are, there are other times where my wife has counseled me not to do things and I've thought, you know, I know better. I'm going to move forward and boy, have I regretted it. And I've learned that every member of the family has gifts that can be appreciated. Every member of the family has gifts that, and a character and a personality that can contribute to the family. No matter how old or young they are, every person has been put in that family by God to bless that family by their gifts and their talents. The Bible shines with this truth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, <clears throat> it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is what? Alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need one another. In harmony with this, Ellen White wrote that we shouldn't seek to conform everyone's views to our own views, but allow for diversity of thought and opinion while seeking for unity, not uniformity. In Medical Ministry, page 269, she says, Those who love and serve God should be allowed to follow their what? Their own convictions. Now, do you know what she was talking about here? She was talking about potluck. Well, food. I kind of contextualized that a little bit. She was talking about food, and she was saying, my convictions with regards to food should not necessarily, I should not necessarily assume that you are equally convicted. Now you might be after I show you the Bible text, but I shouldn't just assume that my convictions are yours. She says everyone should be allowed to follow their own convictions. We may not feel justified in doing as they do, but we should not allow differences of opinion to create disunion. And this leads us to our next step towards harmony in the family circle, and that is to allow discussion and input, to allow for the expression of each person's mind and perspective, and to learn to value, cherish, and seek for the unique ways in which your family members see things. Individuality of thought should be encouraged and expressed in the family circle. Now, one of the verses in the Bible that led to my conversion was a verse found in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. 
And it starts off like this. It says, come now, let us do what? Not just let us reason, but let us reason together. In other words, let me listen to you, and then you listen to me. Let us reason together. Let us come to an agreement by sharing our ideas back and forth. And who says this? The one who has everything already figured out. So if you already know the answer, is that a good enough excuse to not reason with someone else? To not listen to someone else? The Lord himself is willing to reason with us. And he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, of all the people who should say, listen to me, don't talk, just listen. Let me tell you how it is. God should, should be able to, to be the one who tells us. He is older, wiser, infinitely smarter, and by position holds absolute authority. He knows the end from the beginning, and yet in his wisdom, God doesn't force, compel, or dictate to us what we should do or believe. He invites us to come and reason. Think for yourself. Judge for yourself. I gave you a mind, says the Lord. Use it. In the family circle, this practice is especially helpful because unlike God who doesn't learn from us, we actually do learn from one another. I learn from my children. My children learn from me. My wife and I both teach and help one another through our different ways of perceiving the same situation, and this should be celebrated. In Child Guidance, page 228, says God never designed that one human mind should be under the complete control of another. Desire of Ages, page 550, no one has a right to merge his own individuality and that of another in all matters where principle is involved. And then she quotes Romans 14, 12 through, 5, uh, 12 through 15. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And then Testimonies for the Church, volume 8, page 212. We are now to unify, but let us remember that Christian unity does not mean that the identity of one person is to be submerged in that of another. Nor does it mean that the mind of one is to be led and controlled by the mind of another. You know what we call a group? as small as the group may be or as large as the group may be, where one person's mind controls the whole group, we call them a cult. There are many Christians out there that will claim that the Seventh-day Adventist church is a cult. But let me tell you, I don't tell you what to believe. I share with you the Bible. And you get to choose what you place your faith in, what you believe. You get to use your own mind, your own reason. Over and over, uh, you'll hear Adventist pastors say, don't believe me, believe the Bible. Don't believe me, trust in God. Don't take my word for it, check it out for yourself. Because the Bible has enough to convince the human mind. Okay, you say, we've looked at how character, personality, and perspective uh, differences are God's design and needed and even beneficial in the family circle, but how do we deal with different characters? It's one thing to say, okay, you have a right to be different than me, but 
that doesn't make it easy to get along with people who are different than us, especially in the family circle. So how does this happen? How is it practically played out in our life? Well, I'd like to turn you to the preaching of Paul because Paul shares with us how we can get along and work with people in our family circle, in the church, or even outside the church um, to bring unity and to uh, get along with others and even use this as a Christian witnessing tool. We find Paul's strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. He says there, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jew, I became a Jew, that I might gain who? The Jews. To them that are under the law, as what? As under the law, that I might gain who? Them that are under the law. He continues. To them that are without law, as what? Without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. (coughs) So, Did Paul meet very different groups of people? Absolutely. He preached to the strict Pharisaical Jews who wouldn't even pick up a stone on the Sabbath. And then he preached to the godless Gentiles who lived reckless and lawless lives. About as opposite as you can get. And yet, how did he meet these vastly different groups and bring these two totally opposite groups together in one church so that they were unified? Well... He came as close to them as he could come. In other words, he tried to see things through their perspective, through their unique lens, through which they saw the world, and then he tailored what he said to fit within how they saw and experienced the world. So to the Jews, he would preach the gospel uh, according to the Jewish mind. He would quote the Old Testament. He would point them to the sanctuary. He would talk about the the, uh, sacrificial system. This is how Paul would reach the Jews. But if he were to use that same strategy with the Gentiles, they would go, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make sense at all. So what did Paul do to reach the Gentiles? We don't have to guess, because it's written out there in the book of Acts. Uh, In Paul's sermon on Mars Hill... He gave one of the most famous speeches to a Gentile city, the city of Athens. And it's Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. And I'd like you to notice the, uh, the things which Paul says here. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Which basically means... I perceive that you all are very religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now I'm going to pause here. In the city of Athens, they wanted to make sure that they didn't leave any God out. 
it's very similar to the Hindu religion. In Hinduism, they worship 330 million different gods. And uh, if, you've, if something's going wrong in your life, you just got to find out which one you've like messed with and then appease that one and you're, you're okay. So the Athenians were very much like those in Hindu in that they didn't want to leave any, any God out. And even in Hinduism, if Christians come and preach Jesus to them, they have to be very careful because Hindus will just add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. Jesus just becomes another God. Uh, one of the uh, fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church was established because of this very reason. Evangelists would go to Hindu countries. They, would, they found that many would accept Jesus, but just Jesus as one of many gods. And so they established a clarifying fundamental belief that says, no, 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 you can't just have Jesus as one of your gods. He must be the one and only God. That's it. You don't get a pantheon. You don't get 330 million. You have one who will supply all your needs. So in Athens, they were so scrupulous at making sure that they, they had an altar to all the gods that in case they left one out, they made an extra altar to the unknown god, whoever that might be. And Paul... When he comes to Athens, notice he doesn't start preaching right away. What does he do? He goes and visits their church. And he goes and he looks through and he sees an altar to the unknown God. And he says, I know who that God is. They don't know him, but I know him. And he says, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him Declare I unto you. Beautiful. And then he continues and says in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the, the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. So what did Paul do here to reach the heathens in Athens? Okay, I'm going to slow it down. First. He listened. Did you capture it? What was the first thing he did? He listened. So often when we come in contact with people who have different characters than us, uh, our first response is to set them straight. Right? Yeah. Amen. We want to let them know just where they went wrong. We want to tell them our paradigm, our way of thinking, how we see the world so that they can come in harmony with me and get their life all fixed up like I have my life all fixed up. And that's how we approach people. I mean, it's just natural. You know, somebody comes in and says, hey, look what I bought, dear, a tub of ice cream. What did you buy that flavor for? You know I don't like vanilla. You know, that's our like first instinct, right? Like to come at it. 
the first response that we should have is to, to listen. Because only if you listen well can you speak well. Only if you first understand the perspective of the other person have you gained the right to be understood by the other person. And you know, each one of us has an unspoken system of trust inside. Before I'm going to listen to what you say, I have to know that I can trust you. I have to know that I can believe you. And what is it that's going to allow me to trust you if you're willing to listen to my perspective first? So the first thing you do with varied characters in your own home circle when you come into a confrontation is you zip the lip. God gave us how many ears? Two and just one mouth. Use the one thing he gave you last and the two things he gave you first. So you listen, you ask questions, tell me more. I'd like to understand things from your perspective. I really want to understand your point of view. Please give me an idea of how you see the world, how you see this. Tell me, uh, I assume that you really enjoy vanilla ice cream. Is that right? Man, I wish I would have known sooner. I could have gotten you vanilla all along. I'm so glad I listened. So we must listen. And this is what Paul did. Before he ever preached a sermon, he spent time listening. Now, maybe he spent time listening to the people, but he also observed. And part of listening is observing the condition that the person is in. Man, if only I would observe a situation before I speak. You know, oftentimes somebody can look irritated before they sound irritated. Right? And just by taking a moment to observe the situation, you can say, I'm going to come back in an hour and share my thought when the situation looks a little calmer. In Acts of the Apostles, page 238, Ellen White says, Paul showed himself familiar with their works of art, their literature, and their religion. Pointing to their statuary and idols, he declared that God could not be likened to forms of man's devising. Pointing to the noble specimens of manhood about him, with words borrowed from a poet of their own, he pictured the infinite God as a father whose children they were. In him we live and move and have our being, he declared, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God, the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. So he listened. And then after Paul listened, he spoke to the Athenians uh, from their own context. He spoke their language. He shared with them what they themselves already knew from their own poet's work. So here's the, the, the principles that uh, each family circle can learn to connect with members of our own family when we see things so differently than, than uh, they see them. Number one, spend time listening and learning to see things through the eyes of, an, of the other person. 
understanding the other person's point of view is key. Even if you don't agree with their conclusions, you can at least see how they arrived at that conclusion. Now, if we only see things from another person's perspective, but never seek to help the other person see our perspective, this also leads to an imbalance in relationships. And you get that sometimes. You know, a, uh, you've heard of a people pleaser? A people pleaser will sit there and listen to everything you have to say and nod their head and say, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. But they never share any of their own viewpoints. And in that sort of a relationship, there is also an imbalance. One person is still controlling. There must be a sharing of your own thoughts. The only difference is that you listen before you share your own thoughts. You have a context before you share your own thoughts in that context. If Paul had only sought to understand heathenism, but never sought to teach the unconverted world the truth about God, which represents, represented his perspective, Paul's time in Athens would have been fruitless, and either Paul would have converted to heathenism, or unity would never have been truly attained. So, number two, Paul used what he learned about the views of others to share his own viewpoint. He used the altar to an unknown God. He used the writings of their own poet, all to lead their minds through the channels they were most familiar with to a knowledge of the truth, to a knowledge of God, and to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you want to reach someone who is logical, use logic. If you want to reach someone who is emotional, use emotion. If you want to reach... Uh, if you want to reach someone who is simple, then you need to speak with simple concepts. If you want to reach someone who is over you, older, older than you, or in a position of authority, speak with respect and honor for the position they hold. You need to take your words and put them in the context of the person you're speaking to. This is what Paul did. When we approach people from their position rather than from our position, we gain their trust and their heart opens to our suggestions. And in order for there, there to be harmony and unity in the family, there has to be trust and an openness of heart to one another. Feeling that someone understands you awakens trust and brings even opponents together. Now, how do you describe a skyscraper to an indigenous tribal person in the Amazon who has never left the jungle? Well, you can't use terms like steel, concrete, high-rise. That person's going to go, what? Right? What sort of terms do you have to use if you're going to describe a skyscraper to somebody who's never left the jungle? Yeah. Exactly, a tree, a mountain, a really tall hut. <clears throat> and this concept of changing the way that you relate to people by first listening and learning their perspective is brought out in one of the best stories I've, I've heard, one of the best mission stories I've heard, called The Peace Child. Maybe you've heard of this story. Uh, 
It's a true story, and it's one of the most captivating stories of the of this biblical concept that's brought out in the peace child. Don Richardson, he was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. He was sent to minister to the Sawi tribe, a tribe who practiced human cannibalism, which is eating other people. So he got in a canoe and he began to paddle for 10 hours with his wife, with his baby, with his child, and they paddled all the way to the beach where they knew the Sawi tribe was. And as they were paddling up to the beach, guess who was there with their spears uh, watching for them to come up on the beach? It was all the warriors of the, of the Sawi tribe. So they landed on the beach. And as they got on the beach, they said, well, we can't turn around and paddle another 10 hours back. And we don't know whether they've come to meet us, to bring us to a feast, or come to, to eat us as part of their feast. But they got out of their, they got out of their uh, canoe, and they walked up the beach. And as they walked up the beach, the whole tribe of men ran to them and surrounded them. And uh, Pastor Richardson said that they, they surrounded us and pressed us so tightly in the, in the circle, in the midst of them, that we could not even move. And he said, in silence, they all just stared at us. And he said, we, we stood there in total silence for a few moments until finally one of the warriors uh, began to chant, and he began jumping up and down saying, Asa, Asa, Asa. And at that, all the tribal warriors began to jump up and down with their spears in the air, chanting with joy, Asa, Asa, Asa. They had heard from a tribe far away that the missionaries bring medicine, they bring steel, they bring fishing nets, and now the first white missionary to come to their island was, uh, had finally arrived, and they thought, finally, we get uh, spears uh, made out of steel, we get fishing nets, we get medicine. I saw, I saw, they were all happy. And boy, was the missionary family relieved that they weren't for dinner. <laughs> well, Don, Pastor Don Richardson and his family, Nick's, Nick's task was to build a little house there among the people. They built a house. And then he was, uh, before he could present the gospel to them, he had to learn the Sawi language. And how are you going to learn the language of a group of people when there's no dictionary, there's nobody there to teach you, you've just been dropped in the middle of a tribe, what are you going to do? Well, the most natural thing to do is to go around and point at something and hopefully the person would say the word of the thing you're pointing at, right? How many would do that? So here's the problem. Everything he pointed at, they all said the same thing. Didn't matter what it was, a coconut, a house. It was the same word over and over. Redig, redig, redig. Every time he point, he point and tug on somebody and, and point and point and they go, redig, redig, redig. Later he learned that they were saying finger, finger, <laughs> finger. In the Sawi tribe, you don't point with your finger. You know how you point at something? 
with your lips. <laughs> so he had to learn that if he wanted to learn different, you know, what the different things were around him, he couldn't point with his finger because all they would say would be redig, redig. So he pointed with his lips and bit by bit, he began to learn the language of the Sawi tribe. And as he learned the language of the Sawi tribe, eventually, after several years, he got to the point where he could share the whole gospel story in the Sawi language. So he gathered these cannibals together. And they all sat and he began sharing the story to the Sawi tribe of Jesus. He shared the miracles of Jesus. He shared the life of Jesus. He shared about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He shared of how Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, betrayed him and caused him to be crucified. And as soon as the tribe heard about Judas, they all jumped up and down with joy. And they all said, Judas is the hero! Judas is the hero! And he thought, what is going on? You see, he didn't understand that in the Sawi tribe... The hero is the one who can make you think he's your friend and then at the very end stab you in the back. That was the one who was the hero in the Sawi tribe. It's the one who could be the most deceitful, who could actually actually be considered a disciple and in the end cause you to, to come to ruin. He was the hero of the story. So when he presented the gospel, the savior or the, the one who all the Sawi tribe looked to was Judas. Oh no, this is not going, not going okay. I mean, the last thing you want to do is spend your life to share the gospel with a tribe and have them walking away saying, we all want to be like Judas. <laughs> right? What was he going to do? He had no idea. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed. He said, Lord, please teach me how to reach this tribe. What just so happened, that war broke out with another tribe. Don and his family were caught up in the midst of the carnage. There were people that were literally being shot with arrows to death right outside his home. And uh, he kept saying, you know, let's end this war, let's end this war. But the Sawi people are a bloodthirsty, uh, very proud people who will never end a war because they are going to either conquer or be conquered. They're not going to be defeated. They're going to be like Judas, treacherous and fierce. And so finally, uh, Pastor Don told them that he was going to leave with his family because he was not going to continue to be caught up in this war. Well, the Sawi didn't want to lose their medicine or their fishing nets or the good things that the missionary brought. And so they decided to end the war through a very unique tradition that had been passed down for years and years and years in order to keep the missionary with them and end the war, the leader of the Sawi tribe offered his own son to the other tribe as a peace offering. And it was called the peace child. And as long as this child lived, there would be no war between the tribes. And so he gave, the, the chief gave his own son 
And the two tribes met on the battlefield. The chief came forward with his own baby boy and handed it into the arms of the enemy. And this was how peace was brought to the two tribes. And this was exactly what Pastor Don needed to make the connection for the gospel. After the war, Don began to describe the gospel in terms of the peace child. Jesus was the peace child offered by our Heavenly Father to end the war which our treachery and sin and bloodshed has brought. Jesus was how God would bring peace to a tribe and bring an end to death and bloodshed and bring human beings back to God. It was Jesus, the peace child, who their only hope was in. And finally, they got it. Finally, they got it that there was something more important than Judas, and it was Jesus. Most of the tribe became Christians, and today they risk their lives as Christians to carry the gospel to the rest of the tribes in their area. Now, how was Don Richardson able to convey such an important lesson to a group of people that was so dramatically different than he was? He listened first. He sought first to understand their language, their culture, their point of view. And only once he had a solid grasp of where their mind was, could he take the truths of God and connect it with their mind in a way that they could accept it. Let me tell you, these are not just methods that are used overseas in Papua New Guinea. They are methods that are needed in your own family circle. Your children need you to take the time to sit down and listen to their perspective. Your wife, your husband needs you to take the time to listen to their perspective. You say, okay, that makes sense. We reach people by first understanding their point of view, their context and background, the things they are familiar with, and then we present our own viewpoints to them through their family channels. Exactly. And this is how Paul did it. And this is how Don Richardson reached the Sawi tribe. And it's how Jesus reaches us. Christ took on human flesh to reach humanity and its weakness through the channel we could best be reached. Human weakness. Now, obviously, this method of reaching minds can be used in soul winning and bringing people to Jesus. But it it can also be used in the family to reach, uh, to come to agreement and unity in areas where we may see things differently. And neither of us is wrong. In Mind, Character, and Personality, page 53, volume 1, it says, We may have different manners, different tones, different voices. You may view things from one standpoint, and we have ideas different from one another in regard to the Scriptures, not in opposition to the Scriptures, but our ideas may vary. My mind may run in the lines most familiar to it, And another may be thinking and taking a view according to his traits of character and see a very deep interest in one side of it that others do not see. So we've got to recognize this. Now, how will, will we benefit from one another's perspective if we are islands in our own heads? 
We can never truly grow unless we are willing to listen and learn and value the perspective of each member of our family from the youngest to the oldest. Now, what about differences in habits? What do you do when you are clean and organized and you live with someone who is messy or unorganized? What if our lifestyle habits are different? How do we find agreement and unity here? You know, that happens. You have one person who makes the bed and the other person throws their socks on the floor. How do you get along in that situation? Well, in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it tells us, Can two walk together except they be what? Agreed. And here's an important point that you can tuck away. If you want unity, do not magnify your differences. Because two cannot walk together except they be what? Agreed. If, you're, if, you, if there's going to be division in the home... The surest way to divide your home is to magnify your differences. Focus only on the things that separate the two of you. Talk every day about he or she leaving her socks, his socks on the floor. Talk about that every day and you are surely going to uh, be divided. But if you can find areas where you can agree and make that a focus, then you might earn the right to be able to talk about things that you don't agree with and produce real change through real conversation. Unity can never, never be found in disagreement according to the Bible. So the secret to unity is finding ways to make your family centered around the things you agree rather than magnifying areas of disagreement. By the way, this can be used in, uh, in evangelism. When you go out into the community... Uh, <clears throat> you know why no one pays attention to the sign, signs that people, you know, hold up and down saying you're going to be lost forever? Because you're focusing only on the areas that you disagree. But once you come to the place where you've earned somebody's trust, then you've earned the right to be able to talk about the things you don't agree with. Never start with the things you don't agree with. Start with the things you do agree with. The areas that you have in common. If you're strong in cleanliness and organization, you might find that the points in which you clash with other characters in your home are on those very areas you consider your strengths. And you say, how come they are so disorganized and messy? It's so frustrating. But in that moment, you're speaking from your own viewpoint. Your own experience, you're not seeing the world through their eyes. And yes, if they had the exact same strengths as you, it would be easy. It would be a breeze. They wouldn't find that point so difficult. But the problem is that either through nature or nurture, the very area that you find strong, they find weak. Can weakness be overcome? Praise the Lord. Absolutely. There is hope. He or she can learn to pick up her socks, his socks. But when we focus on the weakness of others and magnify those things that we see are wrong with them, that person sometimes begins to identify with their weaknesses. Their weaknesses become who they are now. It becomes part of what 
of what makes up their uniqueness in this world, and instead of promoting change in that person's life, focusing on their weakness and criticizing them for it deepens the problem from just a weakness to now a skewed identity. Now you are no longer dealing with someone who struggles with organization. Now you're dealing with someone who identifies as disorganized. And now you have to undo that person, help that person undo that identity. So you don't want the person to identify with their weakness. Uh, That will only make it ten times harder to break. For instance... Well, you get the point. So how do we help others change their habits? Focus on the positive. You will only give up the things you do if you discover a better way. We respond to reward. Offer to help the person overcome their weakness through support, prayer, praise, encouragement, and hope. Notice that Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. He says, cast all your cares upon me. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Jesus doesn't just stand over us and tell us all the ways that we're not united with Him. Instead, He invites us to find hope and help and support and comfort and rest in Him. He offers us a better way. And once we, are confe- con- uh, once we are convinced that Jesus' way is truly better than the way that we've been living, it is at that point that we are willing to give up our weaknesses. So, <clears throat> I know that there's some people who say, well, you know, there's no point in just positive thinking. That's just pie-in-the-sky sort of stuff. No, 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 no. Being a positive person is powerful in the lives of other people, and we need more positive Christians. People who will speak and think and act in a positive, hopeful way with those around them. In the meantime, affirm the people in your life that they are loved, valued, respected, and accepted for who they are. And all of that can be true at the exact same time as you are working towards change, agreement, and resolution. Romans 12 verse 21 says, read it with me, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then verse 21 says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The key points of the sermon are that we work with different characters by coming close to people understanding their perspective before sharing our own and creating a positive atmosphere where harmony can flourish, we can hope to have that little heaven on earth that the Lord uh, desires for your family circle. Are you committed to working towards harmony in your home? How many today would like to listen more and listen better to those you love? How many today would like to ask the Lord for help in bringing harmony to your household? Amen. Let's pray for that together. Heavenly Father, we know and understand that 
There are people in our lives who we struggle with, who have a different character than us, who have a different way of viewing the world than us. And Lord, we need your help to find harmony and influence in the lives of these individuals, whether they be in our family circle or outside our family circle. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we work to develop skills of in reaching people for you and um, bringing harmony and peace to our relationships. I pray that the uh, principles that you have laid down in your word and through the spirit of prophecy can bless the families in this church and can bring that harmony, that peace, that hope, that help that you desire to bring to every family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.